You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. Mary Hodge has coached four Paralympic Games. When she first started, she was the only female para coach in the U.S. at the time. Mary first got involved in sports for people with disabilities in 1988, when she started a local team for athletes with cerebral palsy. As the high performance manager at U.S. Para Powerlifting, headquartered at Logan University, her main goal within the organization is to help athletes earn medals and achieve their dreams of representing the USA. So, Mary, thank you for being my guest today. You bet. Thanks for having me. So, you know, I want to really talk a lot about uh, powerlifting, and um, and before we do, I wanted to get I wanted to get, kind of get to know you a little bit. How did you get involved with this sport? So I work with United Cerebral Palsy. I'm actually in in less than a week leaving after 32 years to work for para powerlifting full-time. But um, back in 1988, I started a local team there. And uh, that was really my introduction to sport for athletes with disabilities. And through that process, had a gentleman, uh, 25 years old at the time with cerebral palsy, that asked me to teach him how to bench press because I was had just gotten my personal trainer's certification. Mm-hmm. From that, um, it kind of led me through what the process was then, which wasn't like it is now now of becoming a U.S. coach. Um, and at the time, I was, was was the only female coach in the United States of America for para-athletes. And so that entails a little bit more than, you know, powerlifting, obviously. Um, yes. and, and so what did you feel um, you needed to, uh, how did you take on the idea of being a, a coach for, for one athlete? So um, I really was so... Um, not knowledgeable as to an athlete with disabilities. Um, He is a wheelchair user and just trying to navigate how to train someone with bench press. Initially, truthfully, I had no idea that a person in a wheelchair could bench press. Keep in mind, this was 1988 and there wasn't Mm -hmm. a lot of media um, in relation to athletes in um, sport with disabilities. And so I did some research. I contacted at the time the local office, uh, cerebral palsy office in Rhode Island and they sent me over to coach Michael McDevitt, who happens to have CP himself, um, and he has a gym down in in Pennsylvania, and he really took me under his wing and taught me a lot about uh, training an athlete with cerebral palsy. Um, We took our local athlete to his gym in Pennsylvania from New York, Um, and as I said, Coach Mike really took me under his wing and taught me a lot, and then, of course, um, getting more knowledge through personal training and really... Um, you cannot take an able-bodied training program and just give it to a person with a disability and say, go. Mm -hmm. You need to make many adaptations, uh, considering, as I talk about when I do our level one trainings, that a person with a disability, their legs could be the wheels on their wheelchair or the crutches that they use. Mm -hmm. So if you're imposing force on that person's body and using the same structure, which is their legs, meaning their arms when they're wheeling or the arms when they're using their crutches, then you have to consider how you're training them and and the amount of sets and reps and weight. And and all of those things have to be brought into consideration. And so you go from coaching one athlete to being the coach for Team USA. What was that 
process and transition like? So back in um, 1998, I was asked to go to the world championships in Dubai. It was the very first championships that women could con- were allowed to compete on the international stage mm. in para benching. And so I went. Um, at the time, Sean, I had the label coach, um, but anyone that knows me and her, has heard me speak will tell you that I believe those words need to be earned. And at that time, the, er, the words weren't earned. If you went and you wore a t-shirt with the letters, then you were a coach. Mm-hmm. I don't really believe I should have been considered a coach then because I had no idea what I was doing. Um, <laughs> I had really great mentors, our team leader at the time, uh, Bill and um, who has since passed away, and of course, Coach Mike. And it was an eye-opener to be on the international stage, um, just the travel alone. And so I learned pretty much on the go. That is something as now the high-performance manager of the sport, I do not allow. No one should be learning on the go. (laughs) You should have much coursework, much video review. Um, You should be able to mentor under someone's wing. Um, but those mm-hmm. experiences helped me learn what we needed to know. So that was kind of the experience then, just like when I became a team leader, literally on ground in Athens, my first day was <laughs> on Athens uh, at the Paralympic Games was my first day as team leader. And my direction was which way the mailboxes were and what time to be at the team leader meeting. So now I look at the directions I've written for whoever will come after me that are four and five pages per event. Mm-hmm. But we grow as sport has grown. So I've been fortunate to grow with it. And, and I love that idea, Mary, that, you, that of needing to earn the title coach. I think we, in a lot, lot of parts of our lives, you know, there are titles that are given that are necessarily earned. So I, I love that idea. Yes, it's very important to me. <laughs> and, and so, you know, Part of the magazine and part of um, you know our, our podcast here is to introduce people to a sport maybe that they've never considered. Uh, I think when you when you had that idea in 1988, uh, uh, I think a lot of us have that idea that that um, uh, at some point that maybe uh, folks can't do things and and even our own athletes we realize you know there there's often a time where I never thought about that that I could do this sport or I could try this. So if if there's if there's an athlete out there that's never tried powerlifting, how would you describe the sport to them? A great question. Thanks for asking it. So it's an adapted version of the able-bodied bench, or we call AB for those that are in sport. So when you see a um, gentleman or a woman bench pressing, you see that they lay on a very narrow bench. Um, their feet are on the ground. Um, their knees are at a 90 degree angle. And then they're laying with their head on the bench. They put their arms up on a bar that's supported by a rack. They take the bar out the rack. They bring it to their chest. They put it back up. Our bench simulates that in many ways, except that your legs are not on the floor. So our bench is about two feet longer, and it's about a foot wider. The reason for that is when you look at classification, which is very complicated to explain, but basically Mm -hmm. you have between five and seven disability categories that can compete in para-bench. All of those disability categories, so you have an athlete with a spinal cord injury, you have an athlete with cerebral palsy, you have an athlete with um, spina bifida. The athletes may walk, they may not walk, they may be wheelchair users, you have dwarfism. So how do you make all of those different disability types be able to all be on the same level to compete based on gender and body weight class? Mm-hmm. Okay. And the way to do it is to 
um, if everybody puts their legs out up on a bench, then nobody is pushing through their ankles, their knees, right? Everyone's the same. So it is truly then a sport of upper body strength. Mm-hmm. So from your core, if you have the ability to use your core, which would be your stomach and your back and that, that, that circumference area, all the way up is real. And of course, your arms, shoulders, and back are really the game of the, or of the competitive sport. The athlete lays on the bench. More often than not, a coach or trainer will strap them in. You can strap above the ankle, below the knee, above the knee, uh, below the groin. So you can have up to two straps. You mm-hmm. do not have to use two. You do not have to use any. Um, strategically. Oh, okay. I, I wasn't aware. I, I, I always thought that straps were involved. So it, it's not required. It's not required. However, strategically, Sean, um, most athletes would be um, taking away an advantage if they don't use the strap until they get experienced enough not to move their legs because you're no part of your body can move other than your upper body. Mm. And that's very hard to maintain when you're pushing a lot of weight off Mm -hmm. your chest. Mm -hmm. So, and, and, um, you can use your thighs to push against the strap to simulate an able-bodied person pushing through their feet on the floor. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, yeah, because in most in most cases, you would use your legs, you know, as leverage, um, yes. you know, to, to lift a, a heavy piece of, of uh, anything that's heavy, really, Correct. to be honest with you, right? So the whole lower body from the hips down are out in our sport um, because you're not pushing through the ground. Mm-hmm. But if the athlete is strapped mid-thigh and they have that ability to use those leg muscles, they can push against that strap to simulate, but the heels can't dig into the bench. So it's a seasoned way of learning, Mm -hmm. and these are all strategies and techniques that we work with our athletes on. Back to your original question, so once you're laying on the bench, the basis basis of the sport is a spotter, a head spotter will take the bar out of the rack for you when you're seasoned enough. We teach our athletes in the United States, our competitive athletes to unrack the bar on their own Mm -hmm. because the spotters and loaders aren't always consistent. So that could throw an athlete off. Mm -hmm. You bring the the bar out, you wait for the start command. The bar has to come down, descend to your chest evenly. You can't just drop it quickly. It's a nice, even pace. You hold it on your pectoral area motionless. It can't sink. It can't bounce. It can't be uneven. It can't ladder like as in side to side. Mm -hmm. You hold it motionless on the pectoral area without sinking it. As soon as it's motionless and the motion has stopped, you then ascend back up, straight up, and you hold it still at the top, locked out with both hands together until you hear the rack command. And then it goes back into the rack. So it's somewhat prescriptive then. I mean, you have to, you have to wait for certain commands and certain activities. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And there is some subjectivity to the refing. Um, in the U.S., we try to take a lot of that out in the training that we do and all the tips we give our athletes. So it's the most fundamental bench with everything in control and a complete stop. When you're benching double your body weight with a complete stop of a bar in your chest without Mm -hmm. sinking and holding it motionless, that's bringing in quite a lot of your tricep, your back, your shoulders, and obviously your core. 
And I was definitely going to talk about each of those and how, how those different muscles are, are, are being worked or working um, mm-hmm. dur- during the process. And, and so what is it about the sport that you find exciting that you think our athletes or athletes in general find exciting um, about participating in it? Um, it? It's truly a test of strength and power um, and control. And that's probably a piece I often, for any of the articles or any of the interviews I've done, often when I hang up, I think, darn, I should have said control. So I'm glad mm-hmm. I remembered today. <laughs> um, because in the end, look at what I'm telling. I'm saying from the moment you take it out of that rack and wait for that start command, you've got to hold it motionless. If the bar is swaying, the head ref will not give you the start mm-hmm. command. So at that moment, from that very moment, you're under control. Your emotions and your feelings have to be under control because if you have too much anxiety or you have too much adrenaline, you're going to move too fast. You're Mm -hmm. going to make a mistake. You're going to get a red light instead of a white. There are three lights you're judged on. There's three referees, one above your head, two to the sides, down past your knees. So you need two white lights. Three is perfect. Two red lights mean you don't get it. Three red lights really mean you don't get it. Mm. So control is so important. It's exciting because you're with different disability categories, and typically there's about five, within the same body weight class, um, really vying to not only domestically represent the United States of America, um, which I firmly believe is the greatest country in the world, and there is nothing like wearing the red, white, and blue. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, internationally, to represent your country in your body weight class and represent your team and your sport, I don't believe there's a feeling like that in the world. I'm sure there are other feelings that are just as amazing, um, but I've had the honor to coach four Paralympic Games. Um, I did not go in 2016. I stayed home to move our sport from one location to the other. Um, numerous world championships and Parapan Games, and it never gets old to see our athletes achieving their dreams. It really doesn't. Mm. Indeed, I agree with you all wholeheartedly on that. And um, you know, obviously, it's there's a, a lot to say about team sports versus indiv- individual sports. And and you know, powerlifting is is obviously focused on an individual sport. What what do you think most of our athletes are looking for uh, by participating in, in in an individual sport like that? So I think Sean, when an athlete comes to us. Um, I don't actually call them an athlete initially. They're aspiring to be an athlete because Mm -hmm. it takes a lot to be an athlete, right? So Mm -hmm. they come to our level one, which is the first step through the door for us. A coach, athlete, or trainer, everybody takes the same course. It's a like a nine to three. We hit everything. We talk about nutrition. We talk about USADA. We talk about training. We talk about everything. We talk about what it takes to be an athlete representing our country. That's what the athlete aspires to or the prospective athlete. Everyone wants to make a Paralympic team. Mm -hmm. What I then have to teach is think about an Olympian. Most Olympians start when they're two or three. So many don't make it to the Olympic games and many of them are making it by the time they're 17, 18, 19. So they're working for 10, 12, 15 years. Why does a person with a disability think that in a four year period, they're going to make a Paralympic team? I'm unsure. And I'm unsure what's out there in our media that makes people think that, but pretty much everyone comes to us wanting to be a Paralympian and thinking they're going to make the next Paralympic team. So without trying to deny someone their their dreams, because that's never what we want to do, but I want to be realistic mm-hmm. um, with what it is. 
And I start with, if you make an international team representing your country, that's an amazing feat. Um, many of them, their dream is to make a Paralympic team. And once they go through the process of what it takes to make the U.S. team, they realize, wow, this really is a big deal and it is really an honor. Um, so hopefully I answered your question with that. Yeah, no, and, and I, I, I echo those sentiments. I think um, uh, it takes a lot of grind in order to get to that glory. And, and it's a lot of hard work and determination and and passion uh, that gets put into that. It's not an automatic thing. It's not a, It's not an overnight thing. Absolutely. And I think, I don't want to say it's harder because I never like to say one sport's harder than the other, team sport's harder than, than individual or vice versa. But the challenge for sure in individual sport is you really are training on your own. Um, as a high-performance team and myself as the high-performance manager, we make an effort to reach out to our athletes every week. We do an athlete uh, meeting, a Zoom every month, especially during this COVID time that mm-hmm. we were doing it weekly. Um, so we try to keep them engaged with each other. The challenge becomes as the team grows bigger and we are one of the fastest growing para sports in our country, um, you're going to have many athletes vying against each other. Mm-hmm. So that camaraderie is great, but it's hard when you're camaraderie and you're also competing against each other, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, you get into even from a coaching perspective, if you have a coach coaching two people in the same bodyweight class the, competing against each other, that can become a challenge. So part of my job is to try and make sure uh, to the extent we can, we don't have that, um, a coach coaching this two athletes in the same bodyweight class. Um, but you know, it's great that we're growing, but there's always challenges like that for, for our coaching staff and our athletes. Yeah. Particularly as, as para sports in, in general grow, there's going to be a, a wider depth of, uh, athletes and it means more competition. So right. we, can, we can be, we can be friends and training partners and, but at the end of the day, <laughs> we may be also competitors. <laughs> and that's pretty much what I try to say. You know, your friend is your friend until it's, um, bench day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And then your only friend is your bench and that bar. That's true. That's true. And, uh, and so if you're talking to a, a new athlete, um, you know, and maybe those that are listening out here that, that are trying to figure out if, if they want to give this sport a try, what, how do you, how do you start someone, you know, uh, on in, into this sport besides. So there's a couple of things. The first thing is, um, I would highly recommend any prospective athlete to look at two websites. One is Logan, L-O-G-A-N dot E-D-U backslash U-S-A-P-P, mm-hmm. um, United States of America Para Powerlifting. Um, that has a lot of content and information and all of the um, uh, official paperwork. There's also another website that's run by our athletes. It's Disabled Powerlifting, all one word. Um, that is really a great, um, athlete driven website that kind of answers those things that the athletes want to know on both of those websites. There are calendars. The very first step for a prospective athlete is come to the level one. I run almost all of them around the country. Um, so you're going to have consistently what you need to know, what you need to know about the sport, what Mm -hmm. you need to know about training, what you need to know about sports psychology, nutrition, medical, what the processes are. We are starting an athlete mentorship program. So with that, once an athlete comes on, they come to their very first regional event domestically within the U.S. and um, they do well, 
then they're on their road to making um, hopefully Team USA Mm -hmm. to um, compete with our team. With that, then we would connect them with our two athlete mentors, Chelsea Figley, who's our AAC rep, and Mary Stack, a four-time Paralympian. And they will help guide them step by step to what needs to be done, such as like your IPC license, uh, all of these semantics that don't seem to have a lot to do with the sport. But if they're not done, you can't get classified. Right. Uh, so, and, and although we review that at level one, it can be overwhelming to a new athlete and their family. And so it's one of the reasons I started an athlete mentorship program for two athletes that have been with the sport for quite a while and really can step kind of hold people's hands through it. So the initial thing is coming to level one, hearing it, learning it. Everybody gets on the bench, whether you're a prospective athlete, prospective coach, a prospective trainer, they feel it, they try it. We give them some tips. I have everybody video with their phones because we know everybody has phones so that they can go home and find a really good trainer because you cannot train like the typical able-bodied athlete. So if you go into a gym and you say, hey, I want to do the sport. I have to put my legs up. This is what we do. That trainer is not going to understand. But if they see that video that you bring from level one, and then they go visit disabled powerlifting and they look at some of the content uh, recommendations and programs, Mm -hmm. that will better assist them to help that prospective competitor. And so, yeah, definitely at at some point, if they're serious about the sport, they'll want to seek out, you know, some, a coach or a trainer or or someone to assist them uh, to improve their, their ability and capability. Correct. Also at this point, our sport is small enough that I do what we call a pop in. So every athlete in the U S that has any interest in the sport once a month, I watch their training, whether it's zoom, Skype, FaceTime for an hour. And I give them tips and stuff. And it's kind of just a one-on-one session, myself and them, or if they want to have their local trainer, that's very, uh, gives a lot of assistance. As the athlete makes Team USA to go to a World Cup or World Championship or whatever, we then start assigning other high-performance coaches who also pop in a second time a month. And then every athlete is required to send us a video once a month. So basically, we're seeing them three times a month, even though we're not in the gym with them in their state. Um, so they're getting a lot of assistance and a lot of guidance. It then is up to that athlete and their coach, trainer, spotter to execute what we recommend. Hmm. And and so if someone's just starting out, I mean, what like what do you incur? What what is an athlete supposed to or encouraged to wear? What what kind of a does the athlete have to have his or her own equipment? Um, so you mean starting out at their local gym or starting out to come to competition? Um, just that kind of basically starting out just, um, you know, maybe not even having aspirations to compete at the elite, elite level yet. So if a person wants to para bench, they have to figure out in their local gym or, or in their house or garage or wherever they train to put their legs up. Um, for most uh, athletes that are wheelchair users, I say, put your wheelchair at the end of the bench. Get an able-bodied bench, put your wheelchair at the end. The able-bodied bench isn't as wide as ours, so they will not have so much stability because their shoulders will be hanging off the bench, but it simulates what we're doing. Once you put your feet up, even if you're not necessarily using your legs, they really need to be up because you could still get some stability with your feet on the ground if you leave them on the ground. So that's my first thing. Put your feet up. If you're in a gym, get a jump box put your feet up on the jump box. Mm. That, that's the first process. That's for anyone that's a bench presser and they put their legs up, 
they're going to lose probably 25 to 35, 40 pounds off their bench because it's such a bizarre feeling. Mm -hmm. The second, the second thing then I go to is, okay, your legs are up. Now you're simulating that para bench. Now you're really, your body's realizing, oh my goodness, like this is a different feel and everything's coming from up top of my body, none of my body from below. The second thing I say is if you have the ability to arch, which means pushing your shoulder blades together, pushing that chest straight up to the ceiling or the sky if you're training outside, you need to do that. That arch in the end, Sean, um, and I'm breaking it down pretty simplistically because they, I would like the listener to understand most basics of it. It isn't rocket science in this sport. The higher your chest is, the less distance you move the bar when you take it out of the rack, right? This is mm-hmm. not, um, not not rocket science. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. is how I explain it in the level one. So you work on pushing those shoulder blades together, pushing that chest up towards the ceiling, the sky, whatever. And, and that's a very different feeling for an athlete or just someone that wants to bench power. I recommend everybody, including those that are not looking to bench power, but a... Uh, able-bodied person or typical person in a gym to put their legs up because it really forces you to use all those muscles in your upper body and your core. And it's a very different training than pushing through your legs. Not saying that pushing through your legs is bad, just, just, um, not a bad, not a bad way to train sometimes to change it up. Okay. Okay. And for athletes that may not have access to their core or be able to use their core, what, what, what kind of suggestions or tips or how, what kind of adaptations? Are, you know? So with that, and we have certainly are athletes with spinal cord injuries, especially if they're a little higher. Um, and sometimes our athletes with spina bifida definitely um, have those issues mm-hmm. um, or concerns. What I would say is you're just, as I started with, it's, it's a test of upper body strength. So you don't really get the benefit of using your core, but there's other things you can do. You can widen your grip so that you have more stability that way. Um, We look at how they put their legs when their legs are up on the bench. Um, This is something you can't do on a jump box or a wheelchair, but on a bench, a para bench, or even if you make a T with two AV benches in a gym, you can then widen your legs. The wider your legs are, the wider your hip pocket is. That gives you more stability right? Because you have a wider base. Mm-hmm. So there's things like that that can, and again, um, these are all things that are gone over in level one. Um, as far as the core in relation to the bench, the actual bench proper and the lift, if you don't have it, you don't have it. That just means you work a little harder in your upper body. Um, there are some disability categories in relation to competitive para um, that are just not as successful, and that would be like a quad. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for that is because um, the sport requires you wrapping your thumb and all your other fingers around the bar for safety. Mm-hmm. So if you can't wrap that front thumb around the front of the bar, it's really not a safe sport. Does that mean a quad can't bench? Of course not. They need to have a good spotter that will hold on to that bar. So should he or she, um, the person training, go to drop the bar, that person can grab the bar. But competitively, that probably um, is not is not going to work. Hmm. Um, I know we're running low, a little bit low on time. Is there or what are what are some other thoughts or suggestions that you would have in terms of just folks that want to think about getting into the sport? I, so I guess my biggest suggestion is we have a YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. It's USAPP. Um, I should know it off the top of my head, but I don't. 
you look for it on, on YouTube. It's USAPP something. Um, and our, each one of our athletes do a, um, a, a five or 10 minute clip weekly. I think that's the best thing for anyone that's interested in the sport besides the two websites, Disabled Powerlifting and Logan.edu. Go visit those things. Take a look at it. Again, you don't have to be a competitor. It's exciting. It's a great way to train. I will say for any sport, winter or summer, it's a really good training. Whether you um, want to train for parabench or not, which of course we'd love to have a million people come for parabench, it's a lot of fun. Um, the adrenaline is amazing when you're at competition. The adrenaline can be amazing during training. Um, I think we're a really great and fun group to be around. So we welcome anybody, athletes, coaches, trainers, anybody that would want a referee, volunteers. Um, you've got the websites, you've got the YouTube check us out and feel free to contact me, Mary Hodge, the high performance manager. That's great, Mary. And, yeah, and I, I agree. I think it's a, you know, whether folks, and we always encourage folks to, you know, participate in different sports, try different sports and, and you don't have to be looking through the lens of, of I, I aspire to be a Paralympian, it, it, you know, just, if, just taking care of yourself and your body. Um, it's a great physical activity. It's, it's keep keeping people moving. So, Thank you very much for being my guest. Thank you for having me. Really exciting and nice to meet you. 